Morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Good to be with you again this morning. Um, earlier today, I wasn't sure when I would get here. Um, for all of the years that I've driven up here, all of the many dozens and dozens of times, I've every time I leave Shelburne, I say to myself, what would it be like if those funny red lights came on? And as it got to the intersection, of course, my eyes are on Tim Hortons. That's the benchmark. On the other side of it, these bleep, 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 like this. And it's like, oh, great. So I never knew how I'd respond to that and what adjective you explain it. And the only one that I can think of was, that's very annoying. <laughs> Mind you, I did see some very beautiful country uh, on my journey here and uh, obviously made it in time. So it's good to be here. I have kind of a, uh, before we get into this, um, a unique question. Who can tell me what penultimate means? Penultimate. Some of you know it. Say it out loud. What does penultimate mean? Second the second to the last. That's today for me. Here. And um, next Sunday, it's going to be a sad day because um, one of the things that I always do when I leave a church is look in my rearview mirror, and I always have a smile on my face um, because of how God allows me to be part of a congregation. And uh, nonetheless, here, uh, God has been good to me, and I pray he has with you as well. Now, the overall theme in these few messages this month are what to do when you lose it. My question is, don't answer it, did you lose it this week? However you answer it and define it, have you, did you lose it this week? And what did you do about it? Today we're talking about the great reversal, and it's about the prodigal son. And before we talk about his journey, let's um, pray for our own again. Father, I only pray this morning that as Paul taught us, that when we don't know how to pray, that you pray on our behalf. I would pray that you would also this morning be the interpreter of your word to us um, and my words to your people. May they hear your voice and may you grasp their heart and their mind today again in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to start with a quote that is, I think, sets up everything else I'm going to say this morning. And the quote is from Andy Stanley. And Andy says this, The road I'm on always determines where I end up. It really doesn't matter where I intended to be. The path I take determines my ultimate des destination. Regardless of intentions, I always end up where the road I've chosen takes me. Humans have a propensity, he says, for choosing paths that do not lead in the direction they want to go. For much of our decision-making, we, in, we lean hard into our intentions and pay little attention to the direction of the path chosen. Many people don't connect the dots between the choices they make and the outcomes they experience. They've come to believe the popular notion that as long as their intentions are good, as long as their hearts are in the right place, whatever that means, as long as they do their best and try their hardest, it doesn't really matter what path they take. They believe that somehow they will end up in a good place. But, he says, life doesn't work that way. We find ourselves 
When we find ourselves to be lost or maybe just stuck, we may not be sure what to do, but we are aware that we need to do something, every one of us. We are mindful of that place. And usually when we are stuck or going the wrong way, the most logical or helpful thing that we could ever do would be to turn around. Typically, the best time to do that would be before your spouse suggests that you do that. Because it's important, because turning around can figuratively and even literally change your life. And it's never too late to turn around and to start over. I think there are people that believe that they've gone too far and they can never turn around anymore. And I, I don't think that's the truth at all. We can turn around. And we can choose a different path, a path that may even lead you home. I remember the thief on the cross. People talk about nobody, I've been, it takes too long, it's been too late, all those kinds of things. This guy dying on the cross with Jesus had this encounter, at least in his own mind and heart, related to Jesus. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't use theological talk. He didn't pray a prayer. All he did was God to be his help because he needed that. And of course, Jesus said what? Today you will be, what? With me in paradise. Today. Last week, we looked at the stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and the main lesson last week was the celebration when the sheep and the coin were found. And the most significant learning from that piece was not just that they were found, but they were representative of the celebration when a lost person finds life in Christ, new life in Christ. Today we consider this third parable, the parable of the lost son. You would say, and I would as well, that it's one thing for a sheep to wander away or to realize that you've lost some money. But even more so, it's another thing altogether to lose a member of your family, especially when they choose to walk away from home and family. This is exactly what the father of the prodigal experienced. It was his backstory. We don't hear too much about him or from him. We see responses from him toward his son. But we can Im imagine the gut-wrenching experience that he himself had in this journey with the son that chooses to leave home. J.R.R. Tolkien, author of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and other books, said this, Not all who wander are lost. And I know that's true. There are people that are sincerely trying to figure out, navigate, God, where do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? And for some of us, like me, I work best when I'm away from home, away from the office, walking down the train tracks, thinking, processing, preparing sermons, whatever it takes. I'm wandering um, for a purpose not aimlessly, not helplessly, not hopelessly, but not all who wander are lost, but at the same time, many are. Many are. 
So Jesus is continuing here in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 and 12, the carryover from the lost sheep and the lost coin. And he's emphasizing a point. Literally, he says, to illustrate the point further, that is, the celebration when one comes to faith in Christ, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. Now, if I was the father, I would have many different emotional reactions inside, and I would try to hopefully keep them inside. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. This wasn't a random request. It was premeditated. He'd been thinking about this. He'd been processing this. He'd been planning this. And now he had the courage to stand up to his father that in Jewish culture never gave inheritances away unless the father was dead. So he's essentially saying to his father, on some level, I wish you were dead. And he decides and agrees, I'm going to give you what you ask. I've been enough, connecting with enough people over the years to know that um, that's all it takes sometimes is a decision of a, a child to say to parents, uh, I'm out of here. Sometimes it's been close to us. And you see the trauma and the remorse and the pain that that causes a family. A few days later, verse 13 says, this younger son packed all his belongings, including his daddy's cash, all his belongings and moved to a distant land. My idea or their idea is as far from my father's house as possible so that I can be absolutely clear that this is about me running my life. And there in that distant land, he Wasted, the text says, all his money in wild living. And you just have to use your imagination to figure out what you think that might be, what it might mean, what it could look like. The point is, um, it's everything is gone. Verses 14 and 15, about the, the time his money ran out. Have you ever experienced that, your money ran out? It's a very scary place to be because you don't have a phone or a quarter or whatever it takes or whatever to call somebody, to connect with somebody. You have nothing. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. Not the kind of starve that I know, um, that Wanda hears and that my kids sometimes agree with me with, waiting for supper. I'm just starving here. Am I starving of course I'm not starving. But for some reason, we use the kind of language that just makes it really, really dramatic. And nobody buys into it because you can't cook anything three times quicker than you'd like. But there he is. Nothing left. He's beginning to starve because he has nothing to eat. And this young man was enough resourceful that he persuaded, it says, a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed pigs. This was the lowest possible humiliation for a Jew. And the boy was the one that asked for the job. 
and the farmer hired him to feed the pigs. He's facing hardship, shame, isolation. He's lost. He's lost. But it gets worse. Verse 16 says, The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs but no one gave him anything, which means some he had been asking, and nobody would go near it. Now, pods does not mean corn or grain, as we often think that this means feeding pigs. The pod it's referring to is the pod of a carob tree, an evergreen tree that's native to the Mediterranean, bearing bean-shaped edible seed pods. And they would break them up and mash them and feed them to the pigs. This young, desperate, and destitute would love to have some of that meal right now. But he had none of it. So here he is. He's, he's broken. He's at the bottom of the barrel. And this is actually the place where God got his and could get our attention in our own journeys. This is the place where the lost son has... Um, what I call an aha moment. Have you ever had one of those? I've had a number of those over my lifetime when it's just so glaringly obviously obvious that God is speaking to you, poking you, maybe even tripping you up so you recognize that he's trying to get your attention. He has this aha moment. And it's one of my, my most favorite phrases in all of the Bible, verse 17 of Luke 15, when he finally came to his senses. Because up until now, everything is great because he's living his life however he wants to, ends up destitute with nothing. And he finally came to his senses. And he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I have a, a relatively easy, uh, easy time to look at situations like this and, and get them into my mind and picture that image. When he came to his senses, when he said to himself this reality about that the servants in my own house are living better than me and their stomachs are full and they're enjoying the wine and everything about that picture. And then part of this... A moment, he says in verses 18 and 19, I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. A great plan. This was his aha moment. In these verses, he speaks the truth about his own circumstances. He said it, he spoke it, he admitted it, he owned it. He acknowledged it, and he deeply regretted everything that got him to that bad place, that bottom of the barrel. Come to, coming to your senses is coming to the place where you realize that you are not where you need to be or meant to be, and where you come to the full realization and understanding that you were or are wrong, which is another reason why you keep making decisions that get you to that bad place. And nothing changes until our heart's perspective changes about where and why we are where we are. It is coming to the place where you are willing to own your stuff rather than blaming someone else. The easiest part for most of us, it's, well, 
it's because of my mother or father, or it was my boss. And we end up in some strange place that we don't belong, um, basically having a, this demented idea that it, it will cause other people harm. And they are just living their lives normal. When he came to his senses, verse, the verse says, he said, I will set out and I will go back to my father. A.W. Tozer writes this. He says, the normal Bible direction is not backward. It is always forward. The prodigal son did not say, I will go back. He said, I will arise and go to my father. From where he was, going to his father's house was a forward step in his moral activities. It represented not retreat, but a distinct advance over his previous conduct. And the first thing that he does, this, this lost son, is chart a path toward his father's house. It's the first thing that he does. He regrets it. He longs for it. He wants to be there. Bad decisions often lead to the pig pen, to places that can serve as a wake-up call, places that can open a door to a very important decision. And the decision is, do I continue to do it my way or do I go back to my father, whatever the father represents to you? When he came to his senses, I will go back to my father. Only when we come to our senses will we return to the Father. That's my very own story. By the time I had come to my senses and came back to the Father late in my teens, I had learned that no matter what you have done, no matter what you have done, the Father God will always love you and welcome you back. Always. Remember, he's the God that when Peter asked him, how many times should I forgive someone if they offend me? Five times? He gave a number, and it was one more than the, that was expected of a Jew to, to do, to forgive. And Jesus basically said um, it could be up to 490 times. You, you can do, you, there's different perspectives on the numbers, but basically unlimited. You just forgive people. And that's the kind of God that we serve. doesn't matter what you've done, how often you've done it. Um, you go back to God, and God's a forgiving God. doesn't mean he wants you to do it again and again and again, but he loves you. He wants you to be in a place where he wants you to be. Verse, 15, verse 20 says, so he returned to the father. Note that the word prodigal is not used in this story. This is kind of a bit of a rabbit trail, intentional rabbit trail. The word prodigal isn't used in the story. The young man is only referred to in the story as the second son of his father. There's no name, nothing else but he's not called a prodigal. It is only by implication by what we read about how he lived his life after he left home that he fit the description of a prodigal. He was considered to be living prodigally, like a prodigal, but he wasn't called a prodigal. But he lived like it. There are two primary meanings of prodigal, and the first is a repentant wastrel. Now, I lost you there. A wastrel, wastrel is a, a, a wasteful or for nothing person, which, the, prob, which this, the, this son acted like 
But remember the definition of this is a repentant wastrel. One who has reconciled himself and what he's doing before God and makes a decision to do the opposite. The second definition or meaning of prodigal is a person who returns back to the place or to the family exactly as he is, is intending to do in this story. So the emphasis of this story is not about how terrible the son has behaved when he was away from home. The focal point of the story is that he came to his senses and chose a path, a path with, that would lead him back to his father. No detours, no, no side trips, but back home to father. I remember uh, I only did it once. It took so much time. Um, I, I, I preached uh, and uh, just, I literally got dressed up like this character. And it was the char- one of the characters that were, were blind, or sorry, had leprosy, <laughs> and comes up to Jesus and asks Jesus if he'd heal him. And so I had framed this whole thing into this great big talk about this man's journey, and I was doing the journey as I was speaking. And the last piece of it coughed me off guard because when uh, he went back home as a, a clean man, he had to be face-to-face with his father who would have been the one to say, you have to leave the country or leave the city because you're unclean, you're a leper. And it was so intriguing to me. I was talking about this piece, and when I got to the point where I was saying the father, when he saw the father, I almost lost it because it became so real to me. This person that the father basically kicked out of the family because of the disgrace of being a leper came back home and had to interact with his father, and it was profound. And this is what this repentant wastrel of a person who's doing going back because he's going back to his father. So again, verse 20. He returned to his father and while he was still a long way off, and I don't know what that means, his father saw him coming. His father saw him coming. I think about this piece. I don't know how old the father is. I don't think he's probably real young. But when he goes back to this father, when he considers his, this journey and he sees his father, this father is seeing him coming. He's been noticing, waiting, looking, anticipating And the text says, filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. This young man who once held held and was blessed by his father is a poor, a very poor man, one author says. He left home with much pride and money, determined to live his own life far away from his father and his community, and he returns with nothing. His money, his health, his honor, his self-respect, his reputation, everything has been squandered. There's nothing left except his physical body that was probably somewhat emaciated shows up and he sees his father. And in spite of all of this, still his father extends love and compassion to him, greets him with open arms and gives him a big embrace, kisses him. He ran. He, He lost all dignity in doing that. 
You just, a proper Jew, especially an older man, doesn't do those kinds of things. But he saw his son. And if you love a son, if you love a daughter, if we will go through all kinds of things to make that right. And sometimes it takes a long time to do that. But he's filled with love and compassion. It sounds a lot like Jesus to me. He saw the ones that nobody else saw, the ones that they ignored. And he was drawn to them with love and compassion. So he sees them this way. And not only did the son have this aha moment and come to his senses with the intention of returning to the father, he actually did it. He actually did it. First he said it, but now he does it. And this is the turnaround. The father never gave up for hope for his son. When he came home, he never reprimanded him. He never shamed him, but welcomed him back with open arms. Frankly, sometimes when I have to deal with people that come back, um, when there's often a boatload of hurt, it's not always easy to be filled with love and compassion. You want to shake a finger. You want to do some shaming or whatever. But here he is. And this was the turnaround for the man. The turnaround of the son is the great reversal. The very concept of coming to your senses and turning around is a picture of repentance. You're, you're in this direction, you're going in that way, and you stop and you literally, like the prodigal, assess the situation and he says, I need to go back this way to my father. It's an image of surrendering, a giving up of sorts, the admission that I'm not where I need to be in order to get on the right path to the right place. Edward's son had come to the end of himself before he could return to his father. And he, yes, he went home a broken man, but he was a changed man. A man more humble version of himself than he used to be. Surrender, this coming to the end of yourself, this giving up your right to yourself is often the outcome of brokenness. As one author says, a crisis of the will. Because it's not just a nice thought in your mind or a sense of, in your heart. It's about your will. Oswald Chambers, in his book, My Utmost for His Highest, says that surrender is not the surrender of the external life, but of the will. There are very few crises in life, and the great crisis, he says, is the surrender of the will. God never crushes a person's will to surrender. He never begs him or her. He waits until the person yields up her will or his will to him. Verse 21 says, His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He repeated the mantra that he had created to get in good graces with his father, but not as a son, but as a servant. And his father totally ignored what he said. Didn't even pay lip service to it. Didn't even acknowledge that his son had said it. The very next thing that we read in verse 22 is, but... His father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. He had nothing left. He sold everything he had to live. The sandals, everything. 
and verses 23 and 24, and kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began, just like the sheep lost and found, just like the coin. A party begins. Sounds to me like a barbecue. But everything that the father said to get for his son was a mark of distinction. Everything that he said to get to put on his son were what a son would deserve. Not just a servant or a slave, someone working in the house, but a son of the father. John Ortberg, one of my favorite authors, uh, wrote a book called The Me I Want to Be. And he says, surrender is the glad and voluntary acknowledgement that there is a God and it is not me. Jesus does not come to rearrange the outside of your life the way we want. He comes to rearrange the inside of our life the way God wants. In surrender, I let go of my life. I yield to God. I offer obedience. I do what he says. I am not driving anymore. So for us, every day we can choose to release our grip and surrender to Jesus. We can allow God to do a new thing in us, to embrace his own words, not my will, but yours be done. I find myself thinking that often because I'm, I'm prone like you to do my thing instead of God's thing. Not my will, but yours be done, God. And only as an individual, you know how completely you have yielded or surrendered yourself to Jesus. And too often it's compartmentalized. A piece of this, I give you this, I give you this, but I'm going to continue to do this. The question is, do you feel there is more? That the more that Jesus is asking you to give. What is it God has been quietly, gently, but persistently asking you to release your grip from? Many of us have things in life that we're pretty sure we don't want to do that, but we don't know how to release our grip from that. Are you really where you want to be? Have you come to your senses, or do you need to? What path have you chosen? And is it going to take you where you truly want to go? I said this a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's a perfect time to play the movie of your life. I think there's situations that we get in that we need to stop. And we need to envision ourselves in a role in a movie. And if we continue, if you continue doing what you're continuing to doing right now without making any changes, would you like how the movie would end? Or would you say it's a perfect time to um, put some material on the editing room floor, maybe doing a rewrite, because you can do that with God. You can start over. You can do it again. One thing that I ask and would pray today, that you would do what the Holy Spirit is asking you to do. You will never regret it. But it's always the time when he's speaking to you that you make the decision, not going home and thinking about it for a few hours or days or months, because that's what often happens. Do what he says. Do what he's asking. You will never regret it. Jesus, I thank you for the commitment you made 
a choice of your will to go to the cross for us. I thank you for the story of the prodigal. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you portray this, not just a tangled mess of a relationship between a father and son, but the, the character, the father character, so resembles who you are and through Jesus, how he relates to us. And Lord, as you're speaking to us this morning, I pray that you'd also give us the same courage to go along with that nudging, that speaking to us, that we would have all that it takes to make the decision to do what you're asking, not for our benefit, but for your glory. And I ask that God, this week would be just a joy and a delight to live because we're choosing to walk closer to you and to live our life for you. And God, as we do that, um, we just thank you for the ability and thank you for what you will do to honor yourself, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again. Great to be here. Bless you. Coffee out there. I believe there's tea out there. And there'll be friends out there. So connect with each other, encourage each other. And if you see someone you don't know, um, introduce yourself. Thank you. Have a wonderful week.